Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 185 for the 12th of February, 2015. I'm Chester Wisniewski here with Paul Ducklin. Hello, Chester. I won't mention that there's another heat wave going on. Oh, that's all right. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't mind too much. Uh, I'm going to be heading off to the Southern California Linux Expo next week, and that is in sunny Los Angeles, California. I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting up with a whole bunch of uh, fellow Linux Unix nerds down there. So if any listeners are going to be at scale, uh, please come to my talk on Sunday afternoon or look me up, or I recommend buying me a beer if you see me. Uh, don't forget to uh, make sure you're up to date before you go. You don't want to be recompiling your kernel in the middle of your talk. Are, are, are you suggesting that I, I use some sort of an operating system that may be developed out of Redmond, Washington? I don't think you get to compile your own kernel in Windows. No, but if you could, you might consider taking out the ability to render fonts within it. Uh, of course, yesterday was Patch Tuesday, and uh, there were, what, uh, eight fixes out for Microsoft? But there was a couple that really caught a lot of press attention. Nine fixes in total, and for better or for worse, as I put it on Naked Security, two not just floated to the top, they really got in the spotlight. And uh, listeners have probably heard of them. This is the thing that's called Jazzbug, J-A-S. For some strange reason, one of the companies that was involved in finding and investigating this flaw decided to do a big PR push where they named it after themselves, which is a little bit like having the Chester Wisniewski virus. I think people wouldn't assume you'd researched it. They'd assume you'd written it. Yeah, it is a bit peculiar to to name the bug after yourself. I guess perhaps they figure that maybe their only chance at having their 15 seconds of fame, and I guess you may as well have it be infamy. Look, it is an interesting bug, or more accurately, a flaw, because it's actually been in Windows for ages. Very simply explained is that when you log into Active Directory, the server takes an awful lot of trouble to make sure that the client is who or what it claims to be. You have to log in and authenticate and everything. But there isn't anything similar the other way around. So the client can't verify the server. The act of connecting to Active Directory and logging in uh, means that you will then get group policy stuff pushed to you, which ironically is supposed to make your configuration more standardized, make everything more secure. And in doing that, your client can't actually be sure that the group policy files are coming from the right server. So an imposter who could do something like art poisoning can actually feed you fake files, which include things like, you know, group policy login scripts, um, which basically means if they can do this imposter stuff, they've kind of got remote code execution on a plate. So this could be quite dangerous and definitely worth patching right away. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft took almost a year to kind of figure out how they were going to change the basic behavior of Windows in this situation to do this authentication properly. I noticed in the patch notes from Microsoft that they will not be fixing this flaw in Windows XP, Windows 2000, or Windows 2003. So uh, this may be the first really critical bug that we've talked about that's sort of, if you're on XP, you're kind of permanently hosed. You can imagine this all derives from the bad old days, doesn't it? When the whole the idea of network security was you were really worried about people coming in from the outside. So you defined the perimeter and you guarded it well. So the fix was Microsoft introduced uh, a feature called mutual authentication, 
which basically means that the server checks that the client is okay and vice versa. That means that if somebody then does try and stick an imposter server in the way to feed you fake files, your client software will notice. So, so the procedure here would be apply the, the fix from Microsoft MS-15011, and then after that, you can enable this functionality to do mutual authentication. Yes, my understanding is that the easiest way to fix this, unfortunately, requires you to run the gauntlet of the bug one last time. Uh, so unlike all the other patches, you can't just apply the update, reboot, and it's all good. Because you basically need to patch your clients and your server so they both support this new feature, and then you need to enable it at both ends. Uh, and the obvious way to do that is with a group policy object. I guess it's also fortunate that this wasn't discovered through Google's Project Zero, or we would have saw this flaw pop up early last year and then had to sit around for close to a year while it was potentially exploited. So I suppose Google's answer to that, Chester, would be, well, if we were leaning on Microsoft, then they wouldn't have did it for a year. They would have jolly well got their act together sooner. Right. And of course, if Microsoft was Google, they would have already discontinued all versions of Windows except for 8.1. <laughs> Good point. So let's talk about the other patches, because I think, that, to me, there's a lot more criticality. I mean, this, this is obviously an important one, but the other ones, to me, seem scarier, right? We've got an IE rollup, as usual, which includes remote code execution vulnerabilities. We've got uh, office patches that also include the ability to do remote code execution, among other uh, uh, nastiness. And then there's, as I referred to, uh, a bit of a font problem in the oh, kernel yes. again with Windows that can result in some unwanted, fully privileged code executing. So I don't know that I would prioritize anything over anything else, right? I mean, we're back to the same thing we say every Update Tuesday, which is, you know what, you need to prioritize all of them and get them out there. Absolutely. I think that's the key thing, Chester, that as you say, these are basically click-to-owns and open-to-owns that can be driven by a crook through a malicious web page or a poisoned attachment, which is the way that crooks are used to attacking you. They've got that down to a fine art, unfortunately. Uh, and the other really important thing to remember, that vulnerability in Microsoft Office, which means a booby-trapped file can pwn you, also applies in this case to the Microsoft Word viewer. And of course, a lot of people use that as an alternative to a full-blown Word on the grounds that it's supposed to make you safer when you're reading potentially untrusted attachments. In this case, it's still enough for the crooks. Yeah, with the Jazzbug one in particular, I would apply the patch right away, but you might want to do some limited testing of the policy change on some select machines to be sure everything is, is working properly before you blanket, put it in a organizational unit that blasts it out to thousands of machines. Uh, whereas, as you say, the others, you can just do do your quick uh, reboot and you're good to go. Now, ever since uh, President Obama's State of the Union address in the United States, there's been quite a focus on cybersecurity and talk about cybersecurity in federal government in, in America. And uh, this week it was announced that the budget for the 2016 fiscal year is proposed to be $14 billion U.S. dollars for cyber defense and raises up some rather interesting things to discuss. I mean, $14 billion seems like a heck of a lot of CISSPs. Yes, I imagine that they're going to do quite a lot of things. I suppose some of that money will go on things like Stuxnet <laughs> and uh, 
other parts of the money won't go on programming or research, security research at all. Hopefully, it will actually go on just getting the word out, not giving up on trying to teach people that security matters. We hear that an awful lot at Sophos and on Naked Security, don't we? If people go, oh, you, it, you're wasting your time trying to teach people you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And I always think when I hear that, you know, sometimes there are bad students, but it might just as well be bad teaching. Maybe you need to find a new way to get the word out. Yeah, and I think just awareness is important. Uh, you know, there's been a, a pretty large improvement in the 2014 fiscal year in the United States with IC3, the FBI, and other organizations, US CERT, getting the word out about more and more uh, malware, indicators of compromise, what to look for, um, you know, point of sale malware, Android malware, all kinds of things that we used to get no notification of. Like security experts knew about it because in our circles, that's what we talk about. But the general public had no idea. Absolutely, Chester. And another thing that regular meaningful notifications do about threats that are already known sort of means that companies that want to take the excuse, oh, we just had a really, really sophisticated attacker, can't hide behind that so easily anymore. Because they realize that actually they should have known because they were jolly well told. Yeah, I mean, the only concerns I have around this, uh, this is about a $1 billion increase over fiscal year 15, um, which is a, just a ridiculous amount of money. But I'm wondering if that billion dollars wouldn't be better spent in the Department of Education, making sure that we have enough people that actually understand security that they can do these jobs. And and this is a problem, it seems to be, that's not uh, particular to the U.S. I think it's global. I mean, everywhere you look, there's lots of demand for talented people to do the work, and there's very few people available to do it. Now, I have a number for you. 80 million. 80 million more or less. This is Anthem, is it not? Singing the song of a data breach. Yes, um, Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, a large uh, uh, healthcare provider in the United States. And this included people's names, um, addresses, birth dates, and social security numbers, I do believe, which is sort of the perfect storm for pretty much any and every kind of fraud. Yes, uh, you know, income data, social security number, taxpayer ID, and so forth, basically is a bit of a recipe for fraudulent tax returns, isn't it? Now, in many countries, those aren't that widely known. But my understanding in the US is this is an absolutely enormous problem every year that you come to file your taxes, and you find someone else beat you to it. You may owe in $1,000. They've dishonestly claimed, oh, no, I stopped working three months ago. I need a refund, and here's my new bank account number. And they've not only put in bogus data on your name as a tax return, they've taken your refund uh, and cut and run with the cash. Yeah, this has been a growing problem the last few years in the United States in particular, although I, I don't think it's exclusive to the U.S. I've certainly spoken to some people here in Canada at, at the CRA who say it's an increasing trend here as well. And, it, you know, it's not just uh, potential IRS fraud with this information. I mean, name, birth date, and social security number is enough to commit just about any kind of fraud, right? You can get a car loan. You could get, you could do ID theft and get fake, uh, fake documents. This is a serious, serious problem. It's about the worst kind of thing you can lose. And usually we obsess over how many X million credit cards. But of course, a credit card, while an expensive endeavor for the bank, isn't that big a deal, right? Okay, we just cancel 10 million credit cards. We send out 10 million new ones. Um, but a social security number and a birth date is forever. Yes, my understanding is you can change your social security number. 
but it's rare and unusual and an absolutely giant hassle. On the other hand, changing your birthday would be fraudulent itself, wouldn't it? Because you'd basically be rigging up a bogus identity for yourself. So you're really stuck with that. Um, and of course, there's the other, the more visceral problem that you get when the breach isn't with a company like, say, Target or Home Depot. Anthem is also looking after your most intimate medical details because that's how it makes its assessment to decide what your insurance premiums should be. I think a lot of people are going to want to believe that the reason that the medical data is intact is more by accident than by design. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure we'll ever find out the truth in this, but it is one of these things that for me raised up this issue again of not collecting information that you don't specifically need. And in the U.S., the Social Security number is primarily intended to be a taxpayer identification number, which in most cases is not necessarily required by a healthcare provider yet. All healthcare providers in the U.S. that have ever done business with um, require your Social Security number as an identifier, I think, out of convenience. Now, we often anthropomorphize our devices, I find. People name their car, right? In, in... Have you named your car? Does your car have a name, Chester? Um, my current car does not have a name, but um, I have had cars with names in the past. Oh, Chester. For privacy reasons, I'm not going to ask you what they are. <laughs> Let's draw that veil over this part of the conversation right away. Well, but 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 the title for this story when I read it was that can a Raspberry Pi be camera shy? Oh yes, uh, apparently there's a there's one of the chips in the power supply. It turns out that it is somehow photosensitive, and if you give it a big pulse of the right frequency of light, e.g., a flashbulb, it causes the power supply to go a bit haywire, and the machine. Uh, shuts down or reboots. Basically, if you start taking pictures of somebody's Raspberry Pi 2 data center, um, you can do a denial of service attack. But you could be in a you could be in a room where someone's needlessly taking photographs with their flash on, where it's not necessary. That gets pretty annoying pretty quickly. So if we're anthropomorphizing, maybe that's what the Raspberry Pi is doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to um, do a community service message to wrap up this podcast because uh, a friend of yours and mine, who I won't name, currently has his iPhone configured to flash the flash bulb every time an email comes in. And I often go and have dinner or uh, a drink after work with this, this mutual friend of ours and am blinded repeatedly throughout the evening. I can think of somewhere you could put it, Chester, where the flash won't shine. <laughs> Well, on that note, I'm going to conclude Software Security Chat Chat 185. As always, for the latest security news, you can go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available on iTunes, on the TuneIn app, and uh, via RSS, of course, and then the soundcloud.com slash Security. Until next time, stay secure. <laughs>